0: Welcome, normal people. Our topic today is something. This is a new topic. Nobody ever thinks about this. Nobody writes about it. Science and faith. It's, it's a new topic. Well, I know I know at least one person who's talked about it. It's Mike Maharg. He wrote a book, Science Mike Maharg.
1: Science Mike. If
0: that is his real name.
1: Science Mike, yeah. yeah, okay. Finding God in the Waves is the name of his book, and he has spent the last, I don't know how many months, around the country... Um, talking about his journey. With he speaks scientific. everywhere. He's
0: spoken in every town in the United States. Wow. Little known fact. Last year. he was hard So what, you know, I think this is, uh,
1: you know, you, you say it's a new topic. It's clearly been around. I think you've written a few things on it. Mm-hmm. But what's, uh, why does it matter to you? What's the... Why is this a big thing?
0: Well, science uh, gives us a way of looking at the world, which is not easily reconciled with a biblical way of looking at the world. And it's a cause of stress and uh, all sorts of uh, spiritual discomfort for people. And, uh, you know, one thing that, you know, Mike talks about and that others talk about and that I talk about as well is that, you know, part of the problem is that we maybe look at the Bible in ways that we shouldn't look at it. We, we expect things from the Bible it's not prepared to deliver, like maybe scientific or historical information. And so it's, it is a topic that I think in, in, in our world where we're growing all the time in our scientific knowledge, It's it's a thing to get our arms around. And Mike is one of these people who's doing just a tremendous job of making people think differently about their faith and science, not at odds with one another, but even how science can actually broaden how we even look at what faith is.
1: Yeah, you know, two words. I'm going to add some really profound thoughts on that. Cognitive dissonance, Mm. because when I was a kid, I distinctly remember thinking about dinosaurs And thinking about Genesis as a historically accurate document, and that never crossed my mind that that was in conflict in any way. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, the journey has been to actually kind of wake up to that cognitive dissonance, like, oh, wait, maybe these both things, these can't be both true. Mm
0: -hmm. What
1: do I do with that? So let's uh, talk to Science Mike and see if he can help us out of that conundrum. Be better.
0: What a waste of time this is.
2: (laughs) My hermeneutic has changed many times, um, but I've kind of gone full circle in my life where I started out with a Bible-centered Christian faith and then kind of left the Bible behind. And in the last two years, I've been rediscovering this book as something um, that's not only interesting, but enriches my life and helps me to understand God better.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing.
0: And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And that's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, hey, Mike, how's it going?
2: Living the dream, man. How are you? You know why, Mike. You know why you're living the dream because now you're my guest. That's that's literally. I was sitting around like I feel like something's missing in my life. Yeah, and I didn't know what it was. I knew what it was. I knew what it was. (laughs) Jared and I both knew what it was, and this is Mike needs
0: to be on our podcast because he's got a he's got a bucket list,
2: right? And this is this is on it now. So this is pretty cool. I don't, the problem is I don't know what to do with my life now. Right. Exactly. Where do you go? (laughs) It's like an Olympic athlete. I won
0: the gold medal. Now what? (laughs) You can just start drinking heavily and walking the streets aimlessly.
2: Maybe that's, I don't know.
1: That's the plight of us who make dreams come true. I know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The other side of the dream. Oh, bro.
0: Yeah. The nightmare, right? So, (laughs) oh boy. Well, listen, Mike, you know, let's, um, you came to Eastern uh, uh, University in the fall of sixteen. Gosh, was it that long ago already? And you know, you talked about science and faith. And I'm I'm teaching a course on science and faith at Eastern now, and it's just a hot topic. It just won't go away. And that's probably good. A lot of things to think through. But let me let me start. Let me ask you this. All right, um, let's let's bring the Bible into this right at the beginning. It. In your own understanding, how does the Bible, what does it do? How does it function in maybe the Christian faith in general, in your opinion, or maybe just in your own experience, in your own life?
2: What what role, if any, you know, does the Bible play? Well, I'm a, um, I guess it's probably a really common thing now, but I've gone through such an evolution in how, I approach the Bible and, and what role it plays in my life. For the first 30 years of my life, I had a very um, conservative evangelical notion of the Bible and how it should be read. So I would say I thought of it as uh, inerrant and infallible, the Word of God. Everything, every word in it was absolute truth, uh, in most cases, literal truth. And uh, it was meant. Um, for people to know how to serve and please God, um, and so that's that's the role. And I, I studied the Bible deeply with that specific understanding that every word in the Bible was meant for me and every person who followed Christ. Um, and uh, you know, after a while, the legs kind of fell out from under that way of reading the Scripture as I started to go through a deeper examination of my faith, a deeper examination of the claims of the Bible. And part of my life's experience is I spent several years as an atheist, uh, at which point the Bible was um, maybe an interesting relic of the past for understanding how civilization developed, especially the role Christianity played in the formation of, a, of, of ethics and morality and spirituality in Western civilization, and it was only you know, the last few years, as I've kind of returned to faith, that I've started to view the Bible, you know, in a new way. And uh, well, and I would be very clear that's a new to me way, but not really a, mm-hmm. a new new way. And now I understand the Bible um, as being fascinating uh, as a collection of you know, books and documents and letters and um, other resources that have been assembled by the church uh, that help us understand what it's like for people to try to follow God, a collection of stories, testimonies, experiences, arguments. Um, And so this long arc between me and the scripture um, I've gone, you know, to use a a seminary word for someone who's never been to seminary, my hermeneutic has changed many times, Mm -hmm. um, but I've kind of gone full circle in my life where I started out with a Bible centered Christian faith uh, and then kind of left the Bible behind. And then the last two years I've been rediscovering this book as something um, that's not only interesting, Um, but enriches my life and helps me to understand God better. The weird thing for me, though, is uh, when I studied the Bible in the first part of my life, I I felt more and more like an expert and more and more like I had things to tell other people about what the Bible would say, not only to myself, but to them. And today, what I'm finding, even though I read the Bible, you know, Every day, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes for a significant amount of time, is now I feel much more um, humble about it. I feel really unqualified to interpret the text, and I spend a lot more time reading uh, the interpretation of experts, scholars, and, and other folks on the Bible. I spend as much as, or even more time doing that as I do reading the Bible itself. And
0: so, you know, I guess that shift for you is not a frightening shift of moving from like, you think you know everything to a point where you're not sure what you know, and you you seem to be okay with it.
2: You're okay with ambiguity. I am now. That was not an overnight uh, right. switch for sure. <laughs> yeah. well, you had to like get used to that, I guess. Yeah, it was terrifying at first. Yeah, I, mean, I well, because, because you're really no. immature, I think, well, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> if, if you listen to my humor, that's self-evident, but, um, I think there was such a tremendous comfort reading the Bible as an evangelical and never questioning, um, if I knew how to please God or not or what was right and what was wrong. My world was free from any gray. Everything was black or white, white, wrong or right, with no sort of middle ground, no space for confusion. Um, And now, um, it's it's not easy for me to pull one verse out of the Bible and use it as the definitive statement for some issue I'm I'm wrestling with or trying to figure out. Uh, Any one verse of the Bible pulls me back down into its paragraph, into its chapter, into the book, into the whole historical context of that book and who the author was, who he might be quoting elsewhere in scripture, who he might be referencing in his contemporary culture, and then where that fits in the overall meta-narrative of the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a much less black and white process. True. Um, but it also lets us appreciate, I think, the Bible and its full subtlety and complexity, and frankly, the multitude of perspectives contained within it.
1: Well, you continue to read the Bible, you said, and it kind of beyond looking now for what, what's in it for me in terms of how do I need, need to behave and all these things, but why do you read it now versus, versus then? So what's your approach now for what compels you to pick it up at night or in the morning or when, when you read it?
2: Sometimes I wonder what the heck this is all about (laughs) and by this, I mean life and sometimes the world seems dark and hopeless. And sometimes it seems like um, the powerful in our world uh, really have it out for the less powerful or really serve themselves. And I wonder what to do about that. And I wonder where God might be in the whole process. And luckily for me, um, the church took the time to assemble some of the best thoughts on that topic <laughs> from across the, the era of this this movement we call Christianity and, and Judaism before it. And um, when I open the Bible, I'm looking for not answers necessarily, although I'm happy to find insights from its pages. I'm also looking for solidarity to know that other people have struggled with this and, and where they arrived in that struggle. And I'm looking for, you know, how people have understood, uh, the way God was working sometimes when culture or society seems unjust or it seems like evil is everywhere. Um, so, you know, it, it, I could say it kind of to, for people who might have some Bible knowledge, it, I used to be a, a kind of a gospels and Proverbs person and, and maybe Psalms those are, those are my favorite books of the Bible. And today I'm much more into Jeremiah. I'm much more into Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm much more into James in the new Testament and, um, authors that, that talk about what it means um to struggle with the world and struggle well
0: it it sounds like i mean that that's a really interesting way of putting it mike it it, it sounds like the, the bible almost functions as a community building kind of thing where you have solidarity like you said with people in the bible right i, mean, is, am, am, I am i misunderstanding what you're saying there you, you you have a sense of connection with what you read there because they're going through struggles and 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 they're seeing darkness and god 's absence and uh, you know where's the justice, where's the good and we 're asking those same kinds of questions today
2: and not just those same kinds of questions, but those same context uh, of a shared belief in a in the same God mm-hmm. so when I read other ancient wisdom books from spiritual traditions or just ancient literature. I don't necessarily experience that same sense of commonality um, because I'm operating and living within a tradition of people who follow Christ. And so even though Paul and I are separated by 2000 years and my gosh, a lot of different opinions, we both share this hunger to know and serve Christ and to wrestle with what that means in our society because it is challenging.
0: Yeah, I I mean, you see yourself then, I mean, I'm affirming this, you see yourself as more part of a very old and long tradition that's ongoing, and maybe not as much as, okay, here's the book, it's the canon, it's closed, and there's this big gulf of distance between us and what's there.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true.
0: That may have been more in your fundamentalist years than what's happened since then.
2: Yeah, when I was a fundamentalist, I mean... um an idea of feeling solidarity with biblical authors would be scandalous. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what was a biblical author? It was a, it was a like God's receptionist, right? <laughs> God wrote these words, like whispered them down, dictated them, and and they wrote them down. Right and now, I have a, a a very, very, very different relationship with the text than that.
1: Well, and speaking of that, because I think you know, there's a lot of uh, my evangelical friends who would still even read books like Ecclesiastes, like Job, like James, and still read it with a filter. You mentioned the word hermeneutic of kind of certitude, that it's still, those books can be read in such a way that they're still giving you these dogmatic truths that you can sort of hang your hat on. What Can you talk about the evolution for how that changed in, in you? How did you start reading the Bible differently?
2: Well, I ran into this small problem called cosmology. Hmm. Um, and when I understood the Bible was written by God, like directly, and that God was writing in a very timeless culture, transcending way. When I started, you know, a Bible reading plan, uh, and I'm a, I'm a nerd. So I tend to do all reading with intensity. So I decided to read the Bible in three months Mm. and, um, and on my first day, you know, Genesis is depicting that trees were made before stars. And as a someone who's a real cosmology, not that's, that's a problem. So it puts this strange position, this tension on the text where either the text is accurate and God has created a universe that appears to have ancient stars and trees only very recently in its cosmological history. Um, or the Bible's wrong. And that, that was a difficult tension. Like, why would God, if God's telling both stories, the Bible and the creation of the universe, why would they be different? And that started to kind of pull the thread apart of, of inerrancy for me. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, I sort of explored uh, contradictions in the text itself. I had a lot of trouble, again, my first day of my Bible plan between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, having different creation sequences. And I heard some scholarly work that those might have been two stories by two different authors, which was fine, except that both those authors would have been what directly inspired by God. So, um, from
1: from an existential or kind of an experiential standpoint, right? You, you probably, the, the idea of cosmology and these things were things you probably learned. I mean, I learned those in school, the idea that these things are really old and I would read Genesis and they're I never really understood the cognitive dissonance. And so you're kind of presenting those as, as one day I sat down and read Genesis, but surely you had those in mind already. So what, what was the tipping point that caused you that day to sort of say, hmm, this is a little bit more troublesome than it was two years ago when I read this or three years ago? Do you have any insight into what was going on that, that was that tipping point?
2: I'd read Genesis a zillion times as a right. Baptist. But there was always some distance, so I would, for example, read um, read Genesis and then take an like an old Earth lens to it and view it poetically. And um, I think I almost always kept like one step back from the text, read it carefully and cautiously, um, and didn't too carefully try to map it against my understanding of cosmology, but in, in this particular case, I had finished, um, a universe from nothing by Lawrence Krauss, like two days before I sat down to do this Bible reading. So cosmological evolution was very, very fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. And, um, even a very poetic reading of Genesis or, uh, uh, you know, taking some of these, these, these days to mean eras of time, Um, it was tough. And and as soon as that thread started to pull, for example, you know, then I start like, what is a firmament? Let me study that. And I, I got really deep, deeper into the first, you know, handful of verses, the first chapter, especially in the Bible, than I ever had before, kind of desperate to come up with this unified theory of reality as told by Genesis and uh it just it just didn't work and i think for a lot of people um you know there's scientists good like qualified scientists doing amazing work who are not only christians but biblical literalists and i think we have an ability to kind of um compartmentalize these approaches in our mind and for whatever reason that day the wall between my understanding of creation through genesis And my understanding of creation through cosmology, that wall fell down and it was a mess.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing how these journeys begin very commonly, either simply by people reading the Bible, right? I mean, you got to read your Bible every day. Okay, do you mean that? (laughs) You want me to really, really read it, or you know, reading the Bible and, and then also just our common experience and how we look at the world and and trying to match those two, which is difficult to do. Yeah, so we all have to get to that point, and you and you know, getting to the point of reconstruction, I guess, is important too, because I know many people who just sort of um, leave it, I guess, in that atheist moment that you mentioned they sort of leave it there. But then you, you, you didn't stay there, did you? And you, you found a reason to, I guess, revisit the Bible and to revisit your faith. Maybe, maybe explain that to us. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. I, um, it's pretty, pretty wild story. Sounds a little crazy, especially for folks who aren't familiar with my work, but, um, I, I became not just an atheist, but a humanist. Um, but that was a strange one. I spent a couple of years pretending to still be a Christian because I was afraid of social fallout. Um, and I I've, I ended up kind of admitting that I didn't believe in God anymore to my wife because she kind of pinned me and, and pressured me about it. She could tell something was going on and it didn't go horribly. It it did at first, but in in a couple of weeks, things kind of were smoothed over. And I started to get this like hopefulness that maybe I could just be a humanist and not pretend to be a Christian anymore. And um, about the time I felt comfortable with that and had a plan kind of for how I would do that, um, I had something scientists call a mystical experience. And uh, to make a a long story very short, I basically heard what I, I felt as an audible voice speak to me. And then a couple of hours saw a very, very bright light that uh, led me to have a very transcendent experience. And that's disorienting for an atheist. So I was sure... <laughs> it's
0: disorienting for everybody, Mike. I guess.
2: <laughs> but especially for someone who doesn't have like a, a mystical box, right? I already understood that the previous compelling experiences I had with God in my life where some kind of you know socially induced emotional response, but an audible voice and something I could see with my eyes—that's a completely different category of stuff. So I thought the most plausible explanation was like a brain tumor. So I came back to uh, my home and asked my neurologist for a CAT scan, <laughs> um, and I got a CAT scan and an MRI, and I didn't have brain tumors. So I thought, well, maybe I've got like a psychiatric disorder. So I checked myself into the psychiatric center in a hospital here in Tallahassee.
0: Actually, Mike, I would have gone there first with
2: you. <laughs> that's more reasonable. Yeah, that's more reasonable. Anyway, go ahead. What will surprise you, Pete, is they did a full battery <laughs> and like I'm mentally healthy. There's no obvious mental illness. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this psychiatrist looks at me and she says, I don't think you're crazy. I just think you're religious. And um, <laughs> that could have probably maybe even been a worse diagnosis <laughs> for you at the time for an atheist. It was. So I immediately like went back to the Bible to try to rediscover God and, and what this means for me to be religious. I don't, I don't believe in God. So maybe, maybe now I've seen this light and the Bible will have answers. And the Bible was ridiculous. It It, it made me, doubt further the experience I'd had, it made me less interested in God, it made me less interested in, in this kind of rediscovered hunger for Christ that I had. So I put my Bible on the shelf, and I was a bible Christian for <laughs> months, might have even been a year. And um, honest to goodness, what, what kind of changed the way I understood the Bible um, was a friend of mine said, you have to check out the work of a guy named Peter Inns. And oh, I'm responsible, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So I, I actually uh, I, I, read a couple of your books. I read Inspiration and Incarnation. I read The Evolution of Adam. And uh, that image of the Bible is fully human and fully divine. Um, I don't know if I was ready to accept the fully divine part, but understanding that you could be a Christian and acknowledge the human role in the writing and assembling of scripture really opened the text up for me in a big way. And, uh, I started to to kind of get a, a tender new set of, of tools with which to read the Bible. I started to wonder, maybe the problem is not the Bible. Maybe the problem is how I read it. And, uh, what I was really kind of, overdosing on scholarly resources that were out of my league to comprehend. uh, Then the Bible tells me so came out and that was kind of, for me, the crystallizing moment of when the Bible started to make sense again. And and it was um, the the arc of those three books that helped me open up um, other commentaries and other authors on the scripture who maybe weren't as comfortable speaking so plainly about a partnership between God and humanity in the Bible. And, um, but man, that was refreshing. (laughs) Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S.
0: with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit, for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last
0: night. And fast-growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point.
1: It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process.
0: This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who
0: help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty
1: who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, you know what? What I find tragic, Mike, and and I mean that, is I guess the post-traumatic stress disorder that many Christians feel because of how they've been taught. Hmm. Nobody's perfect. I mean, nobody knows everything. We all have many things to learn. But, you know, if, if the understanding of, let's say, the human context of Scripture is like, wow, I've never heard that before. And, you know, my response is, well, maybe you should have gone to church more often. And your answer is, I did. That's the problem. (laughs) I mean, to me, that's that's tragic that um, there's something going on with, I don't know, maybe it's just Western culture that feels it needs to protect the Bible like that and, and, and denying the obvious. And it results in people like you having this tremendous cognitive dissonance simply because you decided to read it. Right. I mean, what kind of a faith is it where it can be so easily deconstructed simply by picking up the Bible and you, you can't get past chapter two and you've got a slew of questions already?
2: Well, and I'd always read the Bible like daily, but I, I always had a guided tour in the form of a study guide um, and it would take a topic and you'd go from this chapter to that chapter across different books. And these sort of guided rope velvet rope tours carefully through the pages of scripture. I have no doubt. I read every verse in the Bible multiple times, just never in the order they're in the book. (laughs) It was actually relatively uncommon for me to take a whole book at once in the old Testament Uh, and the new Testament, more likely to to take a whole book at a time. And that guided tour approach helps, um, helps avoid those kinds of catastrophes with taking the, the text at face value when you have that inerrant, infallible way of understanding the scriptures. Um, but you're right. When, you know the, the, I always felt a little guilty that I let someone spoon feed me the Bible instead of doing the hard work of understanding it on my own. And um, I wasn't a casually committed Christian. <laughs> I was in every time the church doors are open Christian, I taught Sunday school, I listened intently to sermons, I would listen to other churches' sermons in the form of podcasts. Uh, I loved the Bible deeply, but until I sat down to read it on my own, I didn't understand how poorly I understood the Bible.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's an experience I think a lot of us had. I think of, um, you know, Peter Rollins talks about the problem is not that we didn't take the Bible and Christian faith seriously enough. It's that there's a lot of us who took it too seriously. Um, And so, you know, reading the Bible too seriously is actually what led us down this rabbit hole uh, into this other other realm of seeing things differently, because it broke through kind of the ideological lens. But can you talk a little bit about you know in your experience because now you're meeting with a lot of people who have had some of these crises of faith maybe and i'm sure the bible plays into that often when you're meeting with people but to to Pete's point have you found people who you know there's a protection a protectionist mentality with the scripture because a lot of times faith is built on the scripture and not just the bible but a particular understanding of the bible and there's something unique in your story Mike about you had an experience. And so the Bible, your faith sort of shifted in terms of what was foundational at that point. Mm. And so you could approach it in a different way. Have you experienced that with others?
2: Well, I'll be honest, you know, most of my audience is made up of who I call the spiritually homeless and frustrated. Mm. So they've either grown up in a church context and it stopped working or they still go to church, but they're very unhappy. Or some of them were grew up secularists and are curious. Um, and the secularists are actually the most open to talking about the Bible. Interesting. <laughs> something thing new was. and fascinating for them. And they're curious about, you know, they've heard maybe a little bit about uh, the Bible having a bad reputation, but they've, they've never really read beyond the Christmas story, maybe with their family, something like that. Uh, maybe little, little parts of, of the Torah. Um, but no, no deep Bible knowledge, but for most of my audience than that, that, that post faith set or the frustrated and still going to church set, they have a very complex, uh, traumatic relationship with the scripture. The scripture has been used to judge or condemn them or people, uh, they they're close to and love, um, or they've tried to read the scripture closely and found their expectations of a perfect book that has the answer to every question you could face in life uh, wasn't there. And in that way, the Bible let them down. And over and over, I hear the Bible was the catalyst for someone losing their faith or being in the process of losing their faith.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's a shame. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, where does it come? I mean, you know, have you thought, Mike, with all these people you interact with, where why does that why does that weird notion of the Bible even exist?
2: Well, I think it's always been um to some degree an active part of the church. Um you know, part of part of the Christian faith is this this emphasis on what we believe. You know, you had the mm-hmm. after Constantine, this this edict to let's let's weave all these desperate strains together into one unified faith. Let's create some creeds. And now you have this, you know, empirical uh, edict for a common orthodoxy. Yeah. And that, that, that creates a lot of pressure to believe the right things, but at least then, you know, they, they had, (laughs) this is a joke, but they had the common sense to keep the Bible away from the congregants. Right. That was this this guarded thing by the priesthood. So then when the Bible kind of gets out of its box and is available to every believer on the other side of the printing press, um, that represents a danger. That's a, a, a wild idea mm-hmm. and you need some way to try to, to unify people together. And when you add the American experiment to that story, we have some unique yeah. uh, relationships with faith in America. One, cause there's no state church. And because there's no state church, anyone can start their own denomination or Christian tradition in this country. As people have different ideas about the Bible, they splinter and create new sects. And it becomes a test of who you belong with in your theology and how you read the Bible. And when we finally get to the 19th century, and you have this, this growth in theological liberalism, that makes uh, you know, some of the more conservative people in uh, American churches uncomfortable. Now you have a reaction to that in the form of American fundamentalism, American Protestant fundamentalism specifically. And that's the first time in history we see this like hyper uh, soul of scripture idea um, mm-hmm. and, and an incredible mm-hmm. emphasis on the Bible exclusively being the grounding of the Christian faith. I've often wondered if Martin Luther or John Calvin could have survived in a fundamentalist American church in the 20th century, or if they would have been too liberal.
0: <laughs> uh, I think you're probably right on the ladder, you know, they, they, they had their moments, but you know, by and large, you know, I think that they, they, would not have been comfortable in that kind of a setting. But, I mean, you're bringing up a really good point, Mike, because sometimes it's, it's the study of the Bible that can lead you down this strange road you're not prepared for. It's also sometimes just taking a look at the history of the Christian church and then throwing Judaism into it. Why not? And, and seeing how, you know, the diverse handling of the text, um, uh, you know, it just, it, 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 what it does, it relativizes us today And it keeps, it it challenges the notion that is so prevalent among conservative iterations of Christianity, which is what I believe is basically what the church has always believed, especially about the Bible. And if you're saying something against that, you're attacking what the church has always believed. And you're attacking the Bible. And what I like to say to people is, that when when I hear sometimes, Pete, you're attacking the Bible. I say, no, I'm attacking you. There's a big difference. <laughs> right? It's not the same thing. Of course, you know. Then I make up with them when we're friends and everything. But you know, it's you know, it, it's it's almost a self-centeredness. is an arrogance to it, isn't it? Where where you think, my goodness, what I think and what I've been taught is is the is the bar and that's what everyone has to sort of get to or they're just going to be heretics.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I was in a church, a Baptist church, where the pastor told me that Southern Baptists were not Protestants. That right. they, they they weren't traced in lineage wow. back to the Reformation but to the first century and the original church and that Baptist doctrine was unchanged from the faith of the, the direct followers of Jesus Christ. Did you, did you punch him? I believed him. Oh, you didn't punch him. Okay. No, that was a good Baptist in those days. And I, I went around parroting that fact proudly right. that Baptists were not Protestants, that the Catholic church splintered off of Baptists.
0: Wow. I hadn't heard of that before. I know, for example, you know, in the Calvinist uh, tradition that I used to be a part of, you know, neo-Calvinists—I guess we call them now—there um, was a similar thing. We're not—we're not evangelical. We trace our heritage back to you know Augustine and Paul. You know, but I guess I guess every—you almost have to do that if you're if you're part of this non-magisterial, non—let's say non-Roman Catholic and non-Orthodox world that we call Protestantism that came out of the Reformation. You almost have to make that claim. You almost have to say our tradition is the most biblical and for that reason it goes back way to the beginning. That's just a lot of pressure, ain't it?
2: It's a huge amount of pressure that survives no scrutiny in the age of instant information availability. Oh, that's it, isn't it? And I think that's a huge part of what's powering the decline of these denominations is you can't make claims like that and hold on to people that are prone to do the research. You can hold on to people who glom very easily into social identity and frankly don't want to discover that they're, you know, they're being told something that's not entirely truthful, um, but you know that's that's a that's not a growth market. That's what you do in panic, as a as a desperate last ditch attempt to forestall decline.
1: Well, related to that, talk a little bit about you know talking about social identity. And earlier we talked about you talked about the social cost. And I think for a lot of our listeners, and I know uh, when I was a pastor, I would often meet with people who was. They were deeply afraid to communicate these questions about the Bible, really any faith questions because of the social cost. This is going to cost me a best friend at, you know, at least if not a marriage, it's going to cost me my small group, it's going to cost me my community. Talk a little bit about more your personal story and your experience with the social cost of changing beliefs.
2: Well, the first thing I noticed as I started to examine the Bible, I would approach ministers and and leaders in my church and ask questions for a friend. We all know in the church what it means to ask a question for a friend. (laughs) And I I, I discovered from the responses really quickly that those kinds of questions weren't welcome. They they were uh, upsetting, unsettling, and I would get responses like, Your friend might be, um, you know, too too held in the sway of the devil to even understand the gospel right now. Hmm. I'd be like, Whoa, thoughts fired. <laughs> uh, am <laughs> I in? That's a conversation, doctor, it? Okay. And um, so, you know, you get afraid. And I know that when I finally did uh, kind of. Reconcile publicly with what I believed privately after I came back to faith, the fallout was incredible. Um, it, I became a point of intense controversy in my church, mm-hmm. it was scandalous. Um, I was never driven out of the church, but there were some folks really happy when I finally succumbed to persuasive social pressure and moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ostracization and shunning are major tools in the toolbox of faith communities in trying to keep people in line, uh, if not if what they believe, at least with what they discuss publicly. And I'll tell you, honestly, you know, I, my parents got divorced as an adult. That's kind of what led to my deconversion process. I was a really, really bullied child. I've had, you know, some, some fairly traumatic experiences in my life. But leaving a church in that way was the most traumatic, most painful experience of my life by far. Um, It left a tremendous mark on me psychologically and took a long time to get over. And the central piece of that conflict, the source of that falling out was nothing more than how we read the Bible,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. isn't that okay? There's what's wrong with this picture, right? There's something very wrong, you know. Um, a few years ago, I had a survey on my website about what are some things that make it difficult for you to stay Christian, and people responded to that. And I put this in in, in my book, The Sin of Certainty. I talk about this a little bit, but one of the issues was exactly what you're saying. It's basically mean Christians. And I, I, at first, I didn't think that was like, why is it, why is this? I know science is something, or you know, the Bible, or this or that. But why is it how Christians uh, treat each other? And it it just made me realize, in a very um, direct existential way, how vital the community is for how we perceive God. And when they mishandle you, like they did in your case, it really affects. It's not just because your social network disintegrates and we all need one. It's, maybe it's because we actually perceive God through each other. Hmm. And it hurts when these things happen. It really, really, and it's hard to recover from that. And it, if, any, if there's a, a commercial for the community nature of the Christian faith, not the individualistic nature, that's it. Yeah,
2: and I think the, you know, the social sciences are pretty clear that you're right. Um, that there, there really isn't that this notion of an individual faith doesn't fit well with our understanding of human psychology. I'll and,
0: push, uh, I would just
1: push back a little bit only in the sense for the being the devil's advocate here. Uh, maybe I'm in the devil's grasp as well, <laughs> but the idea again, cause I, you know, this is something near and dear to my heart because I have met with a lot of people who feel the pain of this loss over questions about the Bible. And often when I talk to leadership in conservative circles about that, it's not a sense of being mean, it's a sense of protecting identity and saying, well, who are we as Christians if we're not X, Y, and Z? And so there there seems to be a tension of any community, faith community, or any social community has some sort of foundational shared belief. Otherwise, why do we gather? And so I think there is a little bit of that, that tension. And how would you, Mike, how would you articulate that in terms of a faith community? Have you found a faith community that you connect with? And what is that bond, the thing that everyone can share, and how do you keep it from turning into, what if you don't share that, you're kind of pulling at the fabric of our community here.
2: I think every community needs a point of affinity. I don't know that they necessarily need a shared belief.
1: Okay, say more about that.
2: Um, a point of affinity is some some, some common point of um, interest. So you know you could have a a, um, a physics group that gets together. And some people are string theorists and some people are into quantum loop gravity and other people think that we just need to amend the standard model of physics. And, you know, in physics, if you're not a physics person, those words aren't loaded. Those are very divisive camps, (laughs) but they could all get together with the understanding of we're all interested in answering the question, what is reality using math? Right? Hmm. Uh, even if we disagree on the approach, even if we disagree on what the right way to do that is, the point of affinity is to ask the question. And um, the church I go to now is a Methodist church. It certainly has uh, defined theological beliefs and assumptions. But you can come to my church and be an atheist. You can disagree with every point of doctrine and play in the band. You can be an elder. You can read from the pulpit. There is no test of belief for participation in the community. Uh, The shared point of affinity in our church is a common desire to serve the world. So there's people that come to our church that aren't, aren't Christians and they're welcomed because they wanna partner with Christians in helping the world. Um, And I think if you kind of, to use an analogy for how that might be structured, a very common one is instead of putting a fence around the people in the community, and if you're on one side of the fence, you're out, and on the other side, you're in, it's more of a matter of direction. Are you moving? Are you moving towards God uh, or are you moving away? And if you're moving away, uh, you're not out, you're, um, invited to turn around. And, um, I think that the strain for, you know, total conformity or purity and doctrine too often just results in blood on the floor mm. and it doesn't result in healthy community. I think a church can be clear and articulate and confident about what it believes and what its theological beliefs are. Um, But I think to be of Christ is to be generous in how that's applied to people that don't agree. You know, I I think when we read the gospels and we see the behavior of Jesus, he had incredible patience for what in some gospels is called the crowd, Um, less educated people, uh, less um, religious people, maybe illiterate folks. You see incredible patience and generosity of Christ towards those people, and it seems like the sharpness of the tongue is reserved for those who understand the Torah well enough to have really definitive ideas about it, and those ideas become exclusionary. And it seems to me that the figure I see often revealed in the Gospels is a Jesus who is interested in those least knowledgeable and least dialed in theologically, but 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 are interested and fascinated with what Jesus has to say. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, to get to a place where one can articulate, like, the nature of church the way you are now, that, this is a hard thing, I'm sure, for a lot of our listeners to hear, in part because maybe they haven't experienced some of the same things that you have. You have to get to the point, I mean, you couldn't just jump from being a Southern Baptist to this. This is the end part of a journey.
2: Yeah, I don't know how I could have jumped right to here.
0: You can't, right. This
2: is uh this is a lot of nights crying. This is a lot of asking myself, is the church even something worth pursuing? Right. <laughs> do I even care about the church? Yeah. First do I care about God? Then yes. Do I care about Jesus? Yes. Okay, then the church, what do I do with that?
0: <laughs> you sound like every pastor I know about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's you know, that's complicated because my work is is you know, I talk to a couple hundred thousand skeptics a month and, um, you know, that's just uh, part of the nature of my work. Yeah. But, what, you know, what happens to me over and over every week, dozens of pastors of conservative evangelical churches and institutions reach out to me and say, how are you doing it? Mm-hmm. How are you reaching so many millennials, so many atheists? so many people who've left the church behind and it's that I have open arms. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. That Mm -hmm. is it. If they come and tell me the story of how they've been hurt by a a faith that I hold dear, I don't correct them. I cry with them Mm -hmm. and I try to let them know that they are deeply and profoundly loved and they, they they can't talk about what it means to be in a healthy church community, or even mean what it is to to know and follow Christ, as long as they have this gaping psychological wound that, in many cases, was inflicted by Christ's followers.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, Jared and I we've talked a bit in the past to each other about that unaddressed issue, which is a psychological pain, and how this is actually you know, what are we if not psychology and sociology, right? But, you know, the psychological pain, this is not just a matter of correct beliefs. It's a matter of our whole being and our experiences and how that's all wrapped up together. And we're not just disembodied minds processing theological information. We're we're people, <laughs> you know, and it makes a difference. And um, <clears throat> I certainly hope God is good and kind and merciful to all of us. Um because we can't get beyond our human experience and process things from the outside, as it were. And maybe that's even part of the Christian faith, right, that God is a part of what we do. Mm. You know, who knows? We're trying to figure out big stuff. Hey, listen, (laughs) Mike, we are—you've been so kind to spend time with us here. We're coming towards the end, but I've got a question I'm dying to ask you. And I'm I'm dead serious. Yeah, your wonderful book, uh, Finding God in the Waves. You'd said something and it's been, I read it last, uh, a few months ago. And I'm trying to think exactly the way you put it, but you talk about how brain science, did I say that right? This is what it's called, right? You did. Yes, brain science is a safe word,
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a technical term, I don't know, but it's like you using hermeneutics. It helps us understand why we can be skeptical and believers at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Can you just run that by for my sake personally? Again, just explain that. And I know there are people out there who would connect immediately with that idea, how those two things can survive in the same person and how that doesn't make you like weak in faith or something like that.
2: Well, as we've imaged the brain and, and scientists have studied the brains of believers, In a discipline called neurotheology, we've discovered that um, like anything else, your understanding of God exists as a network in your brain and that uh, the process you use to skeptically analyze God is um, oppositional to the network that sustains a feeling of knowledge and knowing God and feeling God's presence. And that can put you in an interesting tug of war. When you doubt, you start to erode your own God network. And that can make it difficult to participate in the kinds of practices that let you feel close to God, to feel like a believer. And for many people, that makes them feel like they have to choose between leaping into a faith that seems like nonsense, but feeling the presence of God, or following logic as far as it will go, with an end state of atheism. And I I found some, some medical science that really comforted me in the story of split brain patients. Now these are people who have suffered from epilepsy uh, to the point that their seizures were life threatening. And in previous decades, one corrective action medical scientists would take would be to sever the corpus callosum. That's a thick channel of nerves that runs between the two hemispheres of the brain. Now what's interesting about doing that is the corpus callosum's whole job is to let the left and right brain communicate. And they wondered what would happen when this corpus callosum was severed. And when patients woke from surgery, they were normal. And as days and weeks followed, they were exactly like they were before the surgery, only now they didn't have epileptic seizures. But <laughs> it was too good to be true. In There's time, probably a downside to severing part of your yes. brain. Go ahead. In, in time, we discovered some really unexpected consequences. People found that their uh, left hands would sometimes operate without their conscious control or permission. So uh, one man tried to hug his wife and his left hand punched her across the face. And she was shocked and he was more shocked. And a, a woman tried to get a dress out of her closet and her left hand grabbed a different dress and pinned her right hand against the wall until she dropped the offending dress. At which point the hand returned to her control. Really? One man had trouble sleeping because as he went to sleep one night, his left hand closed over his throat and started to squeeze. And what scientists realize is the part of your brain that you you think of as your consciousness, as your awareness, is your prefrontal cortex. Well, you have two, a left prefrontal cortex and a right prefrontal cortex. And the left controls the right via the corpus callosum. So now with this cut, for the first time, the right brain can assert its will independently of the left. And scientists started to wonder, does everyone carry around a fully conscious mute slave? in their right brain dude you're scaring the hell out of me right oh it gets better it gets so much better so they said well how can we ask the right brain a question only the left brain has the capacity to speak so your brain is kind of wired backwards your right brain controls your left hand and your left hand controls your right brain so they trained right brains to communicate with scrabble tiles using the left hand and that using a special monitor and a special pair of glasses They could pose questions to the left or right hemispheres of the brain without the other half of the brain knowing what the question was. So they asked one uh, young man, what do you want to do when you graduate? And his left brain said that he wanted to be a draftsman out loud. But his right brain spelled out automobile racer, right? So the two halves of his brain didn't agree on what he would do when he graduated from school anyone who has been a college student or is the parent of a college student, this is why a major is hard to declare. <laughs> different yeah. parts of the brain have different opinions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they asked um, another uh, student that as a joke, they flashed the word girlfriend on the screen and the right brain spelled out the name of one of the research assistants in the laboratory. And there's, there's video footage of that moment where the student flushes red with embarrassment because he doesn't know what the question was. He only knows why that name is important to him. Right. Uh. This is a really crazy. It's called alien hand syndrome. Well, the one that comforts (laughs) me the most, um, is they, they ran this experiment and they asked a man, do you believe in God? And his left brain said, no. And his right brain said, yes. So here you have in one skull a theist and an atheist. Now, theologically, this raises some interesting questions. Like, does half of his soul go to heaven and (laughs) the other half goes to hell? Like, does Jesus only live in one half of his heart? How does this play out? But it, it seems that it's possible for our brain to both embody what it's like to be a Christian and a skeptic at the same time. And I was so comforted to understand what it meant to be a split brain patient, because I'm a person who part of my brain is all in on this Jesus thing that just wants to follow Jesus anywhere that believes in the power of the resurrection to remake the entire world. And there's another part of my brain that thinks all of that sounds ridiculous, that the Bible is just a book of red letters and stories that people put together because they're afraid that after death, nothing happens. And for a while I kept trying to kill off one of those two ideologies. And today I simply let myself be split brain when it comes to serving others, seeing the world through eyes of love and understanding a God that cares for us. I let my inner Christian take the wheel but when it comes to test the world scientifically or or be skeptical about my own ideas or thinking, then I let my atheists run the show. <laughs> and I've stopped trying to just, you know, devote my entire brain to one idea, because that's not how brains work. And instead trust that both my experiences as a Christian and as an atheist are places that God led me so I could see the world more clearly and better serve other people who suffer. Hmm.
0: Wow. Okay, that's that's really helpful. It makes me think, though, the Bible says don't be double-minded, but our response is we can't help it. (laughs) We actually are sorry. (laughs) We're intrinsically at least double-minded. Uh, I'll get the Bible to agree with us. That's fine. Just give me some. (laughs) Well, listen, Mike, thanks for your time. And, uh, you know, this has just been wonderful to talk with you Uh, again, just a quick plug for the book that I mentioned, uh, finding God of the ways, which I think is wonderful. I've given that to a bunch of people. We're reading it in my class at Eastern in our science and faith class. So thanks for writing that. Um, Are you, you're, you're speaking about, seven times a day, eight days a week right now. But are you working on any, any other books? What's your next project? You far I to say- am
2: working on my next book. It could pivot again before it hits store shelves, but uh, I'll give a little teaser just cause it's you. Yeah. All um, right. If you look in the Bible, we have a guy named Paul and he's wrestling with this question. He says, I don't understand myself. I do the things I hate and I don't do what is right, right? Guess what? We can answer that question today with cognitive science and neuroscience. So, my next book is Paul's Dilemma, as understood both through the wisdom of Christianity and the piercing insight of science. Ooh, that sounds really good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty
0: excited about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's that's a different approach. That's
2: really great. Okay.
0: All right. Well, listen, again, Mike, thanks for being on the show. We appreciate it, and take care, and stay safe. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Until next me. time. See ya.
1: Well, thanks again for hanging in for one more week. Be sure to check out Science Mike's book, Finding God in the Waves. You can also find Mike pretty much everywhere. He yes. has a podcast, Ask Science Mike. He also has a, a very little-known podcast called The Liturgist's. <laughs> two um, podcasts don't be you know, offended if, if you never heard of it <laughs> um, not many people have so uh, Pete I think you've been on
0: there mm-hmm. once or twice so uh, you can also find us online I'm, I'm on Twitter at J Bias and if you want to you can follow me on Twitter also at Pete Ends, and also on my Facebook page uh, at Peter Ends and why not check out my, while you're on the internet, why not check out my website, uh, peteens.com and you can find some of my books there. You can sign up for my newsletter and see my speaking schedule, but most importantly, continue important conversations like the one we just had.
1: Thanks everyone. We hope you join us next time.